0: Thank you, Alan. And thank you um, for the organisers for asking me to come. And thank you all for swimming here. <laughs> I it. know fantastic that you managed to make it. Um, so I just gave my bits of paper, which I very cleverly oh. have hidden behind here. Um, okay. Uh, I can't remember the exact title of my piece, and I didn't uh, I didn't write it at the top of my um, of my piece of paper here. Um, But I'm going to talk quite a lot about Betty Sarr. Um, When Betty Sarr, born in 1926 in Pasadena, talks about her career, it's as if she was speaking to her friends about their gardens, their houses and their children. She interweaves stories of treasure hunting, then expands into politics and combines the complicated history of her family with the history of her people. She is clear that her career development was never conducted in the fast lane, and would say that its early, slow pace and gradual visibility was because her early work could have been bad. She's now represented in the collection of many of the major museums in America, and there are dozens of references to her through essays and interviews in lots of publications. She lives in Los Angeles, is represented by Michael Rosenfeld in New York, but seems never to have shown significantly in Europe. Gathering and reusing, or recycling, has been a favourite fabrication (coughs) method for a number of artists, besides me and Betty Zarr, Faith Ringgold, John Lutherbridge, Petit Quintouli, Donald Rodney, Beverly Buchanan, Alison and Leslie Starr, as well as... Christopher to some extent, and David Hannes, of course. Um, The use of readily available materials and things that are ordinary, inexpensive, or free opens up all kinds of possibilities for multiple communication. Objects that have been used and discarded can sometimes seem to have a special meaning, or at the very least, a certain familiarity that encourages conversation. Betty Sarr's work has been described as folksy, naive and even as outsider art. She doesn't see this as a negative criticism and readily endorses for herself the role of a real person making artwork at a professional level. She's always had an important part to play and appears to be constantly battling to remain within the mainstream, often by steps perhaps, but certainly not by any means necessary. Her work is full of satire, of humour, and of wit. Years ago, try this, yeah, making um, making art—just uh, very dark, or I'm getting hit. <laughs> I've got glasses now. Yeah. M- um, making uh, years ago, making art in her converted kitchen within her own house meant that she could care for her children at the same time and it's also at times perhaps restricted the scale of the work and meant that installations didn't become whole until they were installed in the showing space. An ever-present danger at work in working at home is that visitors, scholars and curators can assess a private life, the decor, the family, the cooking and the cleaning. She has over the years turned this into a blurring of the lines between the domestic and the professional, into a series of successes. She made it acceptable to be working in a former kitchen making domestic objects. As Kelly Jones has said, personal domestic space is a place where African Americans have traditionally been able to dream and thus to create. In a world where labor and the public environment often meant inequities of tasks, advancement, and services, or flat-out violence, the home and spiritual side of life was the place where you could, to paraphrase bell hooks, come back to yourself, make yourself whole. That art and dreams of radicalism will be nurtured in such spaces is thus no surprise. The entire family revolved around the artists Every day. She was at the centre of the creative activity, amongst the love and the nurturing, power t- powerfully developing her practice in the space that was once a kitchen, not a shed or a laboratory, but transformed now into a studio. Larry, Sims, Larry Stokes Sims has said that she engages notions of high art through the artful combination of vernacular objects that are not in themselves considered artistic material. Some of these objects, which are more familiar to the public, allow Sar to exercise her uncanny comprehension of, me- of the metaphysical and occult thought. She stores hundreds and thousands of ingredients, ready and waiting to be carefully chosen and then mixed together according to the project recipe the studio in the former kitchen, retains its position as a centre of energy. Most of us have talked about the way she loved the boxes made by Joseph Cornell, having seen a 1968 touring show in Pasadena. Superficially, there are similarities around collecting and arranging into a coherent whole. My opinion is that it was always a convenient way of indexing her work within an American male framework. And only remains interesting because Betty Sarr has honestly been passionate about the artist's work. However, Simon Rodia's Watts Towers in California were much more influential in a multiplicity of ways. On a short visit there in 1993, nearly 40 years after the six-day rebellion of 1965, in which more than 30 people were killed, I fell in love, first of all, with the numerous small square houses Surrounding the site, dozens of them, painted in a huge variety of colours. Most had tiny square front yards in which flowers and vegetables grew amongst ornamental gra- grasses, bright flower pots, plastic ornaments, <coughs> bamboo plants, and multicoloured strip curtains. Even the paving stones were decorated and colourful and matched the fences, the gates, the little windmills, and the weather vanes. Two or three of the elderly African-American people walking through the streets towards their homes with heavy shopping bags were wryly amused at my enthusiasm for their creativity. (coughs) Betty Sarr has said that the towers themselves, which she saw being constructed, have a mother wit, a special kind of intuition. During my... To our visit, I began to examine the two masonry walls, 140 and 150 foot long, decorated with imprints of tools, hearts, and flowery shapes, and with all kinds of multicolored pieces of discarded fragments. There were seashells, stones, pieces of Californian pottery, tile fragments <coughs> with green 7 Up and deep blue milk of magnesia bottles covering the surfaces. Every colour is represented in multiple flat tiles, brick-shaped fragments, ridged and patterned, are juxtaposed with hexagonal plain tiles, patterned and embossed tiles with plates, bits of saucers on all kinds of shells. Shards of coloured rocks are pressed into concrete next to delicate fragments of florally, decorated blue and white, delved. It's as if the fantastic fairy palace is made real, described by Betty Sarr as she remembers watching it grow as a child. The creative influences on the artist are strongly linked to her ancestral line and her own family history through her everyday life as a creative woman. This is politically much more important than simple art history, even more important than art as a commodity for sale. Why is the family and political context developed in parallel? (coughs) She does not claim to have been either deprived or oppressed. Did this make having an overview easier? Did this make acting upon what she saw more possible? She's an example, being born in 1926,
1: of what happens when
0: black people had access to education in the 1940s. She epitomises what was possible and what was not. How she came to be a black woman living and working in America, and what she experienced growing up, what she was or was not allowed to do, are all part of why the work looks the way it does and is perceived the way it is. is still a documenter of the histories and still a spiritual beacon for younger generations. The slow and painful work, undertaken to free a large portion of a nation's people, enslaved, indentured, or at best oppressed by another portion of its people, is the backdrop to Betty Sarr's work. At the same time, she would describe it as a rich tapestry and a solid base for creative practice. Why is she important? She believes in the power of art. She respects the viewer. Her works have their own presence. She is a feminist. She encourages others. The work is beautiful. She exhibits internationally. She has an African-American story to tell. She has experience of the dealer system in America. She has taught at many levels. Her family history reflects an attitude open to new ideas and ways of working. She has tenacity and persistence. She weaves history into the present. Widespread analysis invariably concludes that the power of her work lies in her ability to dig deeply into her deepest self. Peter Grilia argues that fragments of collective identity can be found through her process, and that Betty Sarre is able to intuitively reinterpret what she finds there, and that this is what makes it powerful. Her work is a collecting and retrieval of a collective memory. Lisetta lafalle Collins describes the work as cyclical as life itself. She concludes that the pieces of work, that the pieces' work because they move from being about the world to the people within it. That there is a feeling, an essence of black without being so specific as to become what she calls herself, culture bound. She sees that the strength of the work lies at the places where hundreds of cultural beliefs intersect. Lucy Lippard pinpoints Betty Sarr's natural psychic gifts, saying that these have been developed by the artist into a cumulative public healing process. The work moves outwards from inside. Ishmael Reed has called her a shaman and sees her creativity as the wand-waving process that turns the frog into the prince. He describes it as more than meets the eye. Mary Schmidt Campbell concludes that hers is not an art made for the private, individual pleasure of the artist. She believes it to be about gaining knowledge and knowing that these are secrets which we can never know. Celeste Marie Bernier in African American Visual Arts, From Slavery to the Present, says that SARS assemblages and installations communicate her preference for artworks which have been constructed from the visceral matter of black bodies to understand community involvement (coughs) in art production. Deborah Willis, in her essay, Looks and Gazes, Says, SARS work plays a crucial role in reinterpreting a working class woman by making socially relevant and, re- and race conscious images that question. SARS recycling of images reinforces their universality and makes them specific and less dependent upon individual recognition and more reliant on our common experiences and associations. Kelly Jones uh, points out that Saar's focus on the female body, a full decade before the preeminence of feminist art making in the 1970s, speaks to her force as a member of the vanguard and a visionary. In this poem, written for the catalogue of *My Secret Heart* uh, at Fresno in 1993. Betty Saar reveals her working methods, her visual priorities, her vision of herself as an artist with an ability to absorb and communicate an immense overview of many histories and cultures while living a very everyday life as a woman in the world. My Secret Heart. My Secret Heart is seduced by twilight. It remembers the colors of dreams. It longs for solitude and the exotic my secret heart is a wanderer it sails the sea of imagination it soars beyond the clouds seeking the mysterious it moves through time dream time and space mind space my secret heart seeks the dusty musty forgotten corners it constantly haunts hunts collects ob- gathers objects images feelings It mixes, matches, embellishes, simplifies, camouflages, fabricates to empower the ordinary, to invent artifacts. My secret heart bridges memory and vision. It pays homage to lost rituals of unknown civilizations. It expands horizons only to condense them into a frame, a box, a room. My secret heart is ageless. It beats within the rainbow babe in the woods. It dwells in the house of whispers. The third verse shows clearly a practical, everyday preoccupation for searching for objects to add to her collection or to complete a piece of work. The verse describes her working methods the experiments, the placing, the replacing, the duplicating and the isolating, the completing of the jigsaw, which is the finished piece. When she's not looking for objects in markets and swap meets, she spends the time searching and sorting through her huge collection of gloves, feathers, lace, buttons, beads, keys, hearts, cards, belt buckles, statuettes, moons, washboards, postcards, computer parts and trades. When this is not appropriate, the searching takes place in her mind and she remembers images and invokes feelings from past experience. The third verse implies that the process of looking and seeking is the most constant element of her practice. The words in the last line, it fabricates to empower the ordinary, to invent artifacts. Absolutely make tangible this process. She seems to want to increase accessibility and nurture the possibility of greater understanding. She engages in a magical empowering, but at the same time, the elements used to bring this mystery to the fore are very ordinary. My flight from Los Angeles to Fresno only took an hour, traveling in an extremely small plane. Mm-hmm with eight other passengers. There was only room for seven other passengers. (laughs) Uh, Once we (laughs) landed, I never saw them again. (laughs) The taxi driver who took me to the gallery was more impressed that I'd flown from L.A. than that I'd come from the north of England. Robert Barrett, the curator, explained to me that the Fresno Council of 100 had given Betty Sarr the Distinguished Artist Award for 1993. These are 100 women whose goal it is to promote through the museum an awareness and appreciation of the work of African, no, of American women artists. The award consisted of an exhibition and a catalogue with an essay by a writer of the artist's choice. In addition to the catalogue, there's always an interview with the artist so that in the official record, the artist's position is documented in her own words. In the catalogue, Betty Sarr was described as radiant. My notebook from the time said that I thought the word was appropriate, both in relation to the artist herself, who I'd kind of seen a couple of days before, and to the work on display. During my two-hour visit to this light, airy gem of a gallery, I walked through an entrance adorned with one of her Haitian verve flags, which Robert Farris-Thompson describes as profoundly liminal, standing at the boundary between two worlds. I dared to enter, and was immediately plunged into near darkness, where the sound of the wind circulated above a secret and magic space, as if high in the hills of some lost empire. From room to room, as I wandered through the theatrical twilight and shifting space, Her pieces kind of shone like stars and mini-moons. In 1996, she wrote this, Tangled Roots. My roots are tangled. My unknown ancestors from Africa, Ireland and America have blurred the boundaries. I cannot recall the lost legends of forgotten tribes." not revive the rituals of fragmented cultures. A blend of black, white, and red. I am labelled creole, mulatto, mixed, coloured in every sense, enslaved by the one drop rule, but liberated by the truth that all blood is red. Five years after our conversations in her studio in 1993, where we discuss the issues and everyday realities of racism and the frustration of the lack of awareness in young black people, she was, she was astonished that, that she was finding that they knew so little of the political battles that had been fought and won during the past 200 years. And she started again, from sort of soon after that, to make and show work that confronted racism head on and remembered and revived images used to humiliate and degrade. She chose to return to these themes just at a time at the close of the century when this kind of work was deemed redundant in art circles in Europe. The gathered and reused objects in Betty Sarr's work ask us to bring our own experiences to the table. The better to mix with the histories of those objects that make the magic work. They are ordinary and to some degree familiar. Each has had a use, perhaps only as an ornament, decorating a simple home. But often it's had a place as part of the invisible ritual of everyday labour. Washing, cleaning, cooking, mending, building. Each object has a general and more or less agreed function, as a washboard, board, or a tray, or a religious pendant, or a key. But in addition, of course, is the unique memory and meaning that a tool or a piece of equipment has had for the owner, or the former owner. There are artists among us who feel that this memory seeps through, out of the object's previous history, and into the life of the piece of art we decide to construct. The places and circumstances in which Betty Sarr acquires her material potentially are potentially key to the shape and fate of the work she makes. But at the same time, a plastic heart or button, for instance, could easily have languished in a drawer for several years, waiting to be chosen, its original place of purchase forgotten. Each artwork has within it several separate objects, each with their own general history and function. An extra layer of memory and meaning is given by the previous owners, topped off by the force and power to communicate, bestowed them by Betty Salve. Her putting them together, juxtaposed according to her careful choices, random decisions and intuitive feelings, gives them life as a new reverberating thing. So much of the work is made almost entirely from the old and the used, Old, unspoken memories layered with new things, never used, juxtaposed amongst them. When sharing with audiences in the gallery, the work has yet another new meaning. Memories are triggered and experiences occur which touch our deepest feelings of pain, of love, and of loss. The triggering of past events and the stimulating of old feelings can, of course, be alarming and infuriating, as well as spiritually comforting. It's easy to imagine here that the experience of being reminded of a past time by a streak of house paint she may have used can be more visceral than looking longingly at the colors in the oil paint glistening in the finest, shimmering, Impressionist landscape. Washboards, Jim Crow, trays, mammies, adverts, Aunt Jemima, signs, watermelons, waiters, shoeshine boys, in the Catalogue for In-Service, a version of Survival, in 2000, Lafal Collins says, whether working with dignifying or degrading images of blacks, Saar manipulates their historical context by giving these people voices through a slyly twisted text and subversive gestures. Saar's critique of derogatory images of black Americans in this series continues to help us deconstruct these representations and to change perceptions. Her critique emphasizes the existence of parallel worlds. At issue is how blacks view themselves as opposed to how they are currently viewed and how they have been historically viewed by whites. Visual images are very powerful in establishing how we perceive ourselves. And in Betty Sarr's art, through quick wit and manipulation, Derogatory images are flipped into images of power. The connection with shopping and with the display of goods occurs again and again in her work. You're, she says, you'll find corner stores in New Orleans where the shelves are filled with black plastic skeletons, death heads and dolls, fragments of snake skins, powders and ointments, feathers, oddments of bones, and hair pouches, tarot cards, charts for palmistry and phrenology, incense and perfumes. She makes collections of everyday things which visually impact on women's lives. She inhabits and explores the shop windows, the free markets, the sales, the cupboards, the suitcases and the handbags. She reflects the consumer culture at the heart of American life, she sees the house as a museum to family. The handbag, sorting, emptying, refilling. The cupboards, wardrobes, drawers and fridges. Cleaning, sorting, ordering. Everyday tasks are interwoven with the making of artworks. These days, Betty Sarr buys the material she needs. When she was a small child, she picked up rubbish from the streets of Watts on holiday visits to her grandmother's house while her parents were away. She used to keep the things people sent her through the post, but only when she felt she could communicate the objects they sent. She's been known to exchange things with her artist daughters, Alison and Leslie, such as books, engravings, and small fragments of art. But essentially, she shops. She's been known to visit swap meets. Originally, they were a Southern American phenomenon, a farmer's event at which tools and equipment were bartered. Swap meets in more recent times became gathering places for collectors to exchange ob- objects and items of similar value to improve their collections. Don't get frightened. <laughs> in May 1994, both Betty, Sarah and I were in Cuba, installing our work for the fifth biennial in Havana. The political climate shifted daily and there was an impending atmosphere of collapse and change. The shops were shut or empty of goods. A city without butchers, bakers, greengrocers, hardware stores, bookshops, herb and spice sellers, clothes shops and furniture suppliers, is very disconcerting. Even more so if you love to understand how people interact and communicate together. The markets have vanished and even tourist outlets limped along in a void without context. Hotel shops sold rum and cigars. Betty had gone to Havana to install her work, to meet other artists, and to shop for objects. We thought she'd be able to find religious fragments, fabric, old photographs, toys, books, or perhaps writing materials. One afternoon, in an out-of-the-way and treeless square, we found a woman and her daughter next to two small tables, selling books. These volumes of history and Spanish novels were old, and in bad repair, Betty and her daughter Leslie bought four or five each for use in future work. The ritual. The ideas, the thoughts, memories, dreams. The search. The selective eye and intuition. The recycling and transformation. The materials are manipulated. The release, the work is shared. Ideas. What other thoughts, memories, and dreams you could work on and play with now in this room? What springs out at you from your experiences in other rooms and from other places? Do you recognize these random thoughts as being from events you experienced decades ago or only last week or from some point in time through which you never even lived? What did you dream of last night? Are you reminded of it here? Have sections of sentences from the books you are reading flown into your nightmares? What music soothed you in the morning? What happens to you when you see an object that reminds you that you cannot remember what you thought you knew? What will you pick up in order to conjure past times from present confusion? The search. The objects here are here because I chose them. You have what you have because I chose it. But also because either you chose it, or it chose you. Look at it, the thing you found on our music. Do you like it? Do you want it? Does it remind you of something you know? Or is it something you've never seen? I doubt you. How does it make you feel? How does it make you feel? Embarrassed? Bored? Sorrowful? Silly? Sad? Seductive? Amused? Stroppy? Strident? Sick? Look at it, feel it. Imagine its former owner, the one before you, the one before me. Think about its usage. If it's a cap if it's a cup, imagine some lips. If it's a spoon, put your thumb in the bowl. If it's a banknote, smell it. And check the amount. Can you spend it? Do you want to keep it or do you want to give it away? Do you want to swap it because you are indifferent to it? When I get a thing to the studio, I may want to swap it, having bought it. I may want to sell it even. But usually I keep it and want to change it, break it, or paint on it. If you do decide, today, that you want to keep it, uh, do you want it so you can turn it into something else? Or do you simply want to add it to your collection? Do you want to keep it as a souvenir of events today? Half the items here in this 140-piece display, whether your part of it is in your hand, or already in your bag, or on the floor, under your chair, or here, on the table. Half of them have already been transformed by me. The release. It's up to you whether this transformation for you takes the form of a gift, for me to you, an artwork, a currency, a souvenir, or rubbish. However, this is not one of those sessions in which you, the audience, make the artwork. I've done it already. 140 times this is the sharing space the take it or leave it space you can leave the object on or under your seat and walk away you are then untouched unmoved and free you can swap this object with someone else's if you missed owning it because you're sitting in the chair you're in and the object was sitting on the chair someone else is sitting in Perhaps you saw it earlier out of the corner of your eye under another pers- on another person's chair during the moment when, one, when something else was on the screen. You might have texted your colleague and been informed by her that she has the very thing she knows you want. Great, right, just swap it with her. Or you can come up here to the table in a while, in a while, and swap, and swap your banknotes for a watch, or a record, or a coin. We we forgot to bring the watches. (laughs) Sorry, we forgot to bring the watches. Um, (laughs) You can swap it for a coin, a record, a medal, a postcard, a book, or an old-fashioned work tool, or a kitchen device. And Susan will help you. Not yet. What will you abandon by swapping? Something that disgusts you, bores you, hurts you, or that you already have. Release it. Let it go. Give it to Susan. (laughs) Will you have to think about the pattern of the painting you're giving away? Or will you only be concerned about the low value or invisible importance of the object itself? You will, after all, be releasing it from the burden of belonging to you. Release it. Let it go. Are you finding that you need more than one object? (laughs) Is it becoming obvious that you may have to either rescue an abandoned object, now languishing on a chair, or will you have to persuade a colleague or even someone you don't know to give you their object on a kind of long-term loan? (laughs) If this is the case, do it do it ask them now and leave them with nothing if you've seen an item which you want which you want and it's on the table and you think you want to pair it with the item you already have bring your item to the table wave it (laughs) catch susan's eye. You can take the item you you want to swap. You can you can take your item that you've got. You can swap it with anything on that table. But if you want two items, you want the item you've got and you want the item something there that Susan's got. You are going to have to pay two pounds uh, yeah. to Modern Art Oxford's contributions box. <laughs> okay. So. If you decide to take away two own items, your own and one from the table, we will have less weight to carry back to the studio. And Modern Art Oxford will gain some money. We don't mind. It's your decision. As long as your experience has been one of sharing, swapping, talking and remembering, you may have understood some of the processes and practices undertaken by both Betty Sarr and me as we gather and reuse. Recycle and transform. Remember our histories and call you all to action. I'm going to show you some images here of some recent works of mine, but um, some of you are holding the most recent works of mine in your hands. <laughs> um, so you, know, you are. Um, and uh, what I'm going to do is to write a really very small amount of text just to kind of contextualise some of the things that are on the screen and flick uh, through the images, da, da 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 But when I finish talking, then the swap meet begins. So the slides go on, um, uh, you know, I finish talking, the slides go on, but the swap meet begins, okay? <coughs> Alan may have to help Susan if you get too, you know, intense, <laughs> <a laughs> or you may be just sitting there because you don't want to
1: smile.
0: <laughs> um, now I'm gonna show you some images um, of recent work. But I, I've known Betty Saar's work for more than twenty years. And I visited her, as I said, in LA. Um, I'm sorry, this I'm sorry. I'm just I'm sorry. I'm trying to do too many things. <laughs> <laughs> Always a mistake. It's still Betty Saar's work <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> it's the most recent show This is what she have been sort of there for, for a long while. It's just the m- most astonishing show, which I have to confess I didn't see. It. I guess there must be some people in the room that didn't see it. Okay, I've oh, seen it now. i try and see some more. Um, all right, okay, so now I'll start. And um, um, I'm, 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 um, I'm not a slavery scholar. Uh, but I'm an activist, thinly disguised as an artist. I'm interested in extending communication between artists to, frankly, help those of us working here increase our audiences and our networks. It doesn't always work. We speak different languages and have different class systems, which don't always translate that well. That's the polite version. There are gatekeepers who know who they are, Several series of the work I've made since the 1980s reference Betty Starr's work and her ideas, and these are some examples. It's only since 2007, through working with Susan Walsh, that I've bought, collected, and then used second-hand objects and overpainted them. The four series that I'm showing here, Swallow Hard, the Lancaster Dinner Service, Jelly Pavilions for Liverpool, Negative Positives, The Guardian Paperworks, and Kangas from the Lost Sample Book, are the best examples of of a practice which, over several years, Susan and I collected objects from flea markets, junk shops, skips, and charity shops. The Guardian newspaper archive had an initial life, however, as reading matter, and was bought from local (laughs) newsagents, but pressed into service as an example of what the liberal press do to the image of the black person (coughs) when you don't keep your eye on board. My early experiences in museums and of collections, beautiful things, one of the many gifts given to me by my mother. Every Saturday afternoon, all through my childhood, she and I would either visit a museum or a major department store in London where we lived. In all the venues, we'd marvel at the beautiful things, stare at the colours, remember the shapes, copy the patterns, feel the warmth, drink the tea, eat the biscuits, consider the small things for sale, and watch the smooth, quiet, well-dressed progress of the women, mostly, who wandered around these huge buildings, near us, but not with us. We had no need to purchase anything. We only went to museums and shops to admire the view and to enjoy the luxury, the smell, the lighting, and the visual feast. I had to be taught, much later in life, to look carefully at piles of miscellaneous jumbled items and not to be afraid of the dirt and the ghosts, the imagined spit and old diseases that I could always detect lingering in the spaces around the material. However, after seven years' hard work, and a kind teacher, I can now find anything from plates and jugs, tureens and cups, jelly moulds, to records, banknotes, postcards and kitchen equipment. Sadly, I'm still incapable, totally incapable, of haggling or bargaining or asking (laughs) for more. The joy for me is in the knowing what I want. I usually have a plan about what might be done with it, the pleasure comes in realising what, what it reminds me of and the understanding of how it feels between my fingers. Smooth, grainy, gritty, slimy, thick, thin, fragile, sharp, heavy or soft. This matters just as much as how it impacts visually. That everyday object touched and used, kept and discarded by another, can in turn, with the intervention of the artist, that everyday object touched and used, kept and discarded by another, can in turn, with the intervention of the artist, not the machine, be transformed into a message of resistance, resilience, and revolution. So now, Please come now and either swap your items with the people you want or swap your items with something you (laughs) find.